Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm talking to an international guest from the United Kingdom. Now, those of you who follow pro-life news may have seen a BBC interview earlier this fall between Dr. Callum Miller and a presenter who was an extremely hostile interrogator questioning him on his views of the Texas pro-life law, the so-called heartbeat ban that limits abortion to six weeks. And I was incredibly impressed by the way he handled that interview. And so I took a look into his work and he's been doing pro-life, pro-life work for, for quite some time. And just let me give you, give you a sense of his biography. He graduated from the University of Oxford in 2015 with degrees in medical sciences, neuroscience, and medicine and surgery. He then worked for two years as a doctor in the Thameside Hospital in Manchester while pursuing a part-time degree in biblical studies at the University of Manchester. He currently practices medicine part-time while also conducting research primarily on abortion ethics and policy. Dr. Miller has published articles in top journals such as Bioethics, Religious Studies, and Philosophia. He's taken part in debates, given over 40 conference talks internationally, and of course has spoken on the BBC as well as at several governments internationally. He is one of the most articulate pro-life advocates that I have heard, certainly on television, and I've heard almost all of them at this stage working in the pro-life movement. And so I reached out to him and asked if he would just have a conversation about abortion and the United Kingdom, how he prepares uh, for interviews, what was the backstory to that interview on the BBC, and he agreed to come on the show and have that conversation. So here we are. My first question is one I often ask uh, the guests who come on, which is, how did you get involved in the pro-life movement? What's the origin of you of you deciding to take a very public stance in opposition to abortion? Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. I probably came at it a little differently from most pro-lifers in that I wasn't raised pro-life. I wasn't actually pro-life until I was over halfway through medical school. And so for me, it was really a matter of coming to grips with the arguments and coming to grips with the reality of unborn life and then coming to grips with the reality of abortion. In medical school, you can't just ignore the embryology. You can't ignore the biology. You have to accept that as a scientific fact, which it is. And at the same time, you know, I would meet people who had had abortions. I would meet women who were tormented because of the abortions that they'd had. I'd seen the reality of abortion in medical school. And I think so much of the sort of blindness or apathy towards the pro-life position or even hostility is really from a lack of familiarity with the reality of human life in the womb and a lack of um, familiarity with abortion. And so for me, It wasn't entirely straightforward. I did spend a lot of time looking at the arguments, seeing what the pro-choice academics said, what the activists said, and thinking through those arguments very carefully. But ultimately, the reality became very clear in medical school that this is an unborn child. Abortion ends that life, often in very violent and horrific ways. And when you look at the arguments for the pro-choice position to try and justify this practice, whether by saying the unborn child isn't a person or by saying bodily autonomy means that you're allowed to do that, those arguments really just didn't weigh up. And so I was quite lucky. I went to a university where freedom of speech and freedom of ideas was celebrated. And that's, for me, what changed my position and convinced me to become pro-life and eventually very actively and passionately pro-life. Do you remember which argument was the most compelling to you? Because almost everyone I've talked to, there's this moment where they they come across an argument that they can't dismiss. 
or was it just the overall undeniable reality of, of, of the unborn child's development in the womb? Do you remember that moment? I wouldn't say there was necessarily a, an absolute kind of exact moment, but I say two things really particularly convinced me. The first was looking at the evidence on abortion and mental health while I was actually studying psychiatry in medical school. And I wrote an essay on this and it seemed to go down well. People, you know, when I argued in this essay that abortion did have a negative effect on women's mental health, this was probably the biggest psychiatry department in the world, or certainly one of them at Oxford. And the tutors didn't shoot me down or say it must be false. They took it seriously and I got a good kind of result from it. And so really looking at that evidence, seeing that abortion didn't empower or help women, and actually it did significant harm for them was a, a particularly important thing. And then secondly, the argument from human equality. I really just found the more and more that I looked into it that you, there simply is no way of reconciling human equality with abortion. The fact is, to justify abortion, you have to say, firstly, that unborn children are less than human, or they're, or they're less equal, or you know, they, their lives don't matter in the same way that the rest of ours do. And I then thought that if you say that, you have to say that about anyone who might not have the same developmental level or the same mental capacities. Once you begin to base our human worth on mental capacities or our development, you have to say that human value is a continuum. It's a spectrum. Some people are more valuable than others if they're more intelligent or they're more self-conscious. And for me, as someone who's always been very, very committed to egalitarianism and equality and basic human rights, I just found that there was no way around this argument. I found that the pro-choice academics that I read conceded this. They said that human equality is illusory and that humans do differ in their worth. And for me, that was just something as, as a human rights enthusiast that I just couldn't tolerate. And so I, I couldn't help but come to the conclusion that unborn children, given that they are human, must be equal as well. Now, how did you go from reaching those conclusions to becoming a public advocate for the pro-life position? Because in university, the vast majority of people uh, who hold these convictions decide to keep quiet about them. And that includes people who are members of, of pro-life clubs on campuses. Even the, the, the club that I was part of, most of the members kind of wanted to keep their head down. They didn't really want to make a lot of public statements. And here you are in medical school with a lot to potentially lose by, by staking a public claim to this position, and yet you were, you were very vocal. So how, how did your evolution from somebody who was pro-choice halfway through medical school but changed his mind to the person, which we'll get to eventually, who's, who's defending the pro-life position on the BBC, even when wildly unpopular laws are, are being discussed? In some ways, I think it's understandable that so many people are quiet, given the sheer hostility and sometimes even violence, as you particularly seen in Canada, you know, given how real that is. And most of my pro-life friends who have been outspoken have felt threatened, seriously threatened, not just offended at some point for their physical safety or otherwise. And so you can see why people might not want to make a big deal out of it. For me, I'd always kind of welcomed debate and I'd always been interested in sticking up for the little guy and thinking that it doesn't really matter what people think of you. The most important thing is that you stand up for justice and that you do what's right. And so for me, growing up as a pretty left-wing welfareist person, that was always things like immigration or welfare. And I was always happy to be unpopular for having a very liberal approach to immigration, a very liberal approach and redistributionist approach to welfare. Some of that has been moderated. Some of it, I, I still hold those positions. And so I'd, I'd always kind of had that mentality that this was the right thing to do if, if there 
there really is an injustice. And if there's someone who is weaker, who's in need of support and protection, then the right thing to do is give your voice to them. And I didn't kind of do this immediately straight away in the public sphere. Most of it was just arguing on Facebook, as most people um, of our generation did. And then I kind of realized over time that the more this went on, the more I needed to be an advocate and try and change the legal protections for unborn children and change the cultural opinion towards them to stop this dehumanization that's so prevalent. And I didn't kind of have any particularly profound way of doing that. I just reached out to one of the pro-life organizations in my country. There aren't very many, so it was easy to find them. I just reached out to them, had a call with them and said, I'd like to help. What can I do? And it was really just through being available and offering my help wherever I could that I ended up meeting more people and getting involved in more projects and eventually ending up on the BBC. So it, it wasn't any kind of particularly profound journey. I really just wanted to be that voice that unborn children don't have. And that one thing led to another. And I ended up getting to do that to many more people than I ever would have expected. What was the reaction of your peers, your family, your friends when you decided to take this position? Because if, if a lot of us grow up in homes where, where the pro-life position isn't discussed, but it's the default position. And if that wasn't the way that you grew up, how did, how did people respond when you decided to take a, a very public pro-life position? I actually have quite a British approach about it in that we generally don't speak about anything important to each other <laughs> with people that you care the most deeply about. So it, it was to a large extent, it was a case of that, that you know, for a, to a significant extent, there really wasn't much reaction among the people I was closest to because we never really discussed it, even after I became a very public advocate. So, I, you know, there was some hostility from some people. Some people wouldn't be friends with me anymore and very much hate me as a result of my convictions. Other people were much more tolerant. I mentioned earlier that a university in Oxford, surprisingly, perhaps, is a surprisingly good place for people to share views they disagree with or other people disagree with and it's actually a very open environment in many respects now obviously at oxford there are some people who really hated me for my views and you might have seen it went into the news just a few weeks ago the oxford students for life group had their stall trashed at an event and were threatened and so on so it's you know i'm not making out that it's a panacea of free speech and liberalism at oxford but actually i did find that the people i'd already surrounded myself with were mostly open-minded and wanted to listen and wanted to discuss things now we didn't always speak about abortion because it's a topic that many people want to avoid. But I I suppose I didn't personally feel as much backlash as other people might have done. But on the other hand, that's not to say it doesn't exist. Clearly, I lost friends over it and that's inevitable. But as I say, it's the right thing to do. And I've been losing friends for the sake of justice all my life. So I wasn't about to give up at that point. Not a bad reason uh, to lose friends once you once you think it through. When when you when you were deciding to engage in the in the pro life movement, did you have any like preconceived notions of what the pro life movement was like? Because so I was unfamiliar with the pro life movement proper growing up, and then I'm always very interested what people think about the movement once they come into it because it is a very sort of insular movement in many ways. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the leaders have been around for decades, which you know is awesome, but it does give way to a very specific sort of thing. It's a little bit difficult to remember. I guess I'd never really come much into contact with them. As you probably know, it's not a hugely significant political debate in the UK. We don't get much kind of coverage of it. That's changed in the last few years 
um, since I joined, but not because I joined. But before that, really, you wouldn't hear about it much in the debate. And pro-lifers were kind of a mystery. I'd never really come across them. So I didn't have any kind of positive or negative preconceptions. I did spend a lot of my time as a teenager reading a lot of, I guess, liberal work that was politically pretty liberal. And from that, I'd kind of always got the impression that not necessarily pro-lifers specifically, but people in those circles were kind of dumb and nasty and unintelligent and bigoted. So for example, like, although I went to university vaguely believing in Christianity, I definitely wouldn't go to an evangelical church or anything like that. I just thought they were kind of pathetically dumb and and not very nice so i i don't know to what extent i had the same view of pro-lifers maybe that was a part of it in any case you know when i did first go along to a pro-life conference there was nothing for me to complain about or find objectionable you often hear of this kind of parody of pro-lifers as being basically like ronald reagan enthusiasts who do nothing except protest abortion, shout at women, and shoot at gun ranges all day. Now, of course, I have my friends who are Republicans, and many of them are perfectly, you know, would, would certainly would vote for Reagan again if he were still around. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that, you know, secretly pro-lifers are all, you know, super progressive Democrats or anything like that. But, you know, on the other hand, I, I just didn't see this parody of stupid, nasty people. I saw people who genuinely cared. And one of the things I find most bizarre about what many abortion supporters say about us is that we are primarily about controlling women's bodies. Because I think anyone who spends time with us just knows that's not true. Most of my pro-choice friends just think that's ridiculous when they hear it, and it puts them off supporting abortion because they know that these are simple mistruths being spoken. I mean, one example is the, you know, this idea that no one's looking after children and that if you ban abortion, there's going to be all these children who are not looked after. I mean, when you just look at the statistics, you see there are 3,000 pregnancy centers just in the US, and that's the most reviled pro-life movement in the world. That's where they're all arch-Republicans who are only obsessed with money and not helping anyone. <laughs> Even in the US, there are thousands of pregnancy help centers entirely devoted to helping women get through their pregnancies and look after their child after they're born. And so... I think as someone who's always had at least a bit of a connection to reality, I just couldn't take those criticisms seriously. And so I, when I met pro-lifers in the UK, it was no different. These were people who cared both about children and about their mothers and wanted to serve and love them both, despite the massive personal cost. And so that was really my first impression. And, and it's been one that's remained with me ever since. That's a very, very good way of putting it, because it is true. One of the things that I found with pro-lifers around the world, but but especially in the United States, and I'm a, I'm a dual Canadian-American citizen, and I've worked I've worked with a lot of pro-lifers in the U.S., and, and regardless of what you think about their various positions, they put their money where their mouth is. They fund these centers. They take in moms. I know I know guys that, that, that people would think are flamethrowers who will never, ever tell you publicly that they'll have pregnant women who just move into their house for the duration because they need a place to stay. Like they really do ensure that they, that they're willing to to carry through with with their convictions in a way that I think would stun a lot of people. And, and in terms of the you know wanting to control one's body, thing, I've never met anyone who wanted to do that, which is which is kind of interesting because you'd always expect to find 
one or two people that the whole movement's being defined as. But I've never met anybody who really cares about that particular thing, which is which is interesting when you kind of consider it. Now, for for those for the uninitiated, what would you how would you describe the abortion situation in the United Kingdom? I know there's a lot of things going on right now because during the pandemic you had do-it-yourself or at-home abortions that were temporarily approved, and I know abortion activists are are, are pushing for it to be approved permanently. I know one one spokesperson actually said that the higher rate of abortion in the UK in 2020 was actually a positive sign. And the reason they said it was a positive sign was it means that the women, the more women who want abortions are actually getting them. So, so where are you at in the UK and where do you think you're headed? Yeah, so I, I think for a long time we had a sort of equilibrium where people were kind of not necessarily happy, but especially not the pro-lifers, but they were kind of across the society there was a sort of passivity about the status quo in that we had abortion women could generally get it up to 24 weeks it was very rare that someone couldn't get an abortion but on the other hand it wasn't straightforwardly legalized <clears throat> sorry it was something that was still illegal but you were allowed to have an exception to the law for pretty much any reason and they said this is mental health reasons but they interpreted that however you want so I think most people were kind of content with that. And there was, you know, pretty good conscientious objection for medical professionals and so on. And people were allowed to speak their minds if they had the opposite view. They were allowed to protest. They were allowed to say what they thought and so on. And really in the last few years, there's been a push all across Western Europe. And so it seems like in Canada as well. And obviously in the US, there's a huge pushback because of everything going on there. Really to try and stamp out this dissent and really stop abortion from being something that can be debated. And so what we've seen in the UK is a number of different things, the first of which is attempts to have censorship zones outside of clinics. Obviously, these are portrayed as pro-lifers just shouting at women and abusing them as they go in to obtain abortions. The reality is the overwhelming majority of these are people offering support or even silently praying. And we've now had in certain parts of the country the criminalization of silent prayer. So it's literally a thought crime. You can, you are not legally permitted to stand outside an abortion clinic or even walk past an abortion clinic if you are silently in your head thinking bad thoughts about it <laughs> is effectively what the law boils down to. So it's, it's really kind of dystopian and Orwellian what we've come to. Um, fortunately, that hasn't been put across the whole UK because our government, as much as it generally abortion also sees itself as quite a liberal government that supports the freedom of thought and freedom of speech and so on so that hasn't been a national thing and it probably won't be for a while we think but it's, it's certainly on the cards um other things we've had we had a parliamentary report on pain for the unborn child after this study last year which showed that unborn children can reasonably likely feel pain from just 12 weeks of pregnancy that hasn't gone anywhere kind of in particular at the moment but it's something that we think is is obviously very important we've had real success actually in raising the issue of eugenic abortion or disability selective abortion so what you find in the uk is that although something like 90 to 95% of people will tell you that they are pro-choice and that they think abortion should be available. One of the things we've really found is that there's actually much more of a nuance in UK opinion on this. And I think it's actually very useful to think about and to engage with. Because when you ask women in particular, do you think the abortion limit should be reduced from 24 weeks? 70% of them say yes. And a significant proportion, about 40%, say they should be thinking it 
sorry, say they think it should be cut to half of that, just to 12 weeks or less. And so although you have kind of overwhelming agreement among most people that abortion is generally okay, you also have pretty strong majorities that the current law is too liberal and that what the current law allows is a problem. And so this is a sort of way of opening up the debate to show that it's not just about women haters who want to restrict abortion versus freedom lovers who think abortion is fine. In reality, most people think that there are some abortions which are not okay and should be limited and restricted legally. And that really opens up the conversation to say, well, this is fundamentally not about who hates women or who thinks that women should be controlled. It's about when does the child become a life of value? When does it become a person? And should we think about limiting abortion when it does? And pretty much everyone in the UK says, yes, at some point abortion should be limited. So one of these sort of situations where there's significant disagreement is on disability abortion, as I said. We've had a wonderful advocate who I don't actually know if she's pro-life at all. Her name's Heidi Crowter. Um, her married name is Carter. And she is a lady with Down syndrome who has taken the UK government to court saying that our law, which allows abortion in general up to 24 weeks, but up to birth or during birth, if the child has a disability, is discriminatory. And there's actually pretty widespread agreement on this. Even one of the UN uh, committees, the treaty monitoring bodies, which are generally very pro-abortion, even one of them said that this law, which allows abortion up to birth for disability, is discriminatory against people with disabilities. And so there's been lots of positive coverage of Heidi and her fellow advocates. And we really think it's an opportunity to show how the abortion industry is not just something which has a really negative effect on unborn children and their mothers. It's also something which is at its very core eugenic and at its very core discriminatory and against human equality in allowing for disability selective abortion. So that's something that's been a particularly important issue in the UK in the last couple of years. And it looks like we might make some real progress on it. So that's one of the more positive developments. Now, looking at, at the politicians you have, uh, where the UK is similar to Canada is that there is no pro-life party, but there are political parties with a significant number of pro-lifers in them. And I, I always wonder what, what, what British people think of, of, for example, Boris Johnson. When you look at, at, at the UK Conservatives, who would you identify as an obvious ally? Because Boris Johnson, who's, who's got a reputation of, of being sort of a, a, you know, a freewheeling populist, is somebody who's always been very socially liberal and, you know, like news broke, I think this is probably two decades or more ago, about him procuring an abortion. So he's obviously been been very pro-abortion in practice. But how do pro-lifers see the, the British political scene? Who do you see as an ally? Or are there, you know, people who will behind closed doors tell you they support you, but but nobody who's really willing to go public on it? So in the UK, there's only one kind of major political party, which is pro-life, which is the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland. Now, they are fully pro-life in kind of their stance and in their voting and so on, but they have very limited ability to kind of do much outside of Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland, the people they represent, is such a small percentage of the population they're not able to kind of make a huge difference within parliament generally but certainly within northern irish politics they are um, able to do a significant amount otherwise there are a few pro-lifers within the labor party there's maybe one member of parliament within the liberal democrats who would count as pro-life but doesn't necessarily 
have a very strong voting record. So really, that you know, there are a few scattered around other parties, but kind of as I said, in the same way that the sort of status quo, where this is a matter of conscience and there's reasonable disagreement about it, has sort of disappeared and it's become much more belligerent. So some of the more liberal parties in the UK have moved from saying we have different views and this is a matter of conscience to saying actually we are a pro-abortion party and if you don't like that then you have to leave and it's, it's certainly moving in that direction there was actually one candidate who stood for the liberal democrats a couple of years ago and when his view on abortion was pointed out they basically got rid of him as a candidate and he ended up suing them so i don't actually know what happened to that lawsuit in the end whether it's still going i know these things can take quite a long time but that really means that within kind of the the majority of the uk outside of northern ireland the large majority of pro-life MPs would be in the Conservative Party. Some of them will be firmly pro-life and would be happy to say that they're pro-life and they will always vote the right way and do the right thing. Jacob Rees-Mogg is the most obvious example who's actually a member of the cabinet. He's a very devout Catholic and has publicly said, I accept the Catholic Church is teaching on this and so on. So he's the kind of person who would be more outspoken, though doesn't necessarily advocate on it very commonly then there would be a lot of people who would be kind of sort of sympathetic so they would vote for the pro-life side on things like sex selective abortion but they wouldn't vote to restrict abortion more generally and that would be probably about half of the conservative party maybe a bit more than half the conservative party depending on the case and then there are a number of people who yes would be pro-life but wouldn't want to say anything or would be vaguely pro-life, not very passionate about it, and again, not want to say much. So there certainly are people who, you know, it's not just Jacob Rees-Mogg, there are people like Scott Benton, Fiona Bruce, um, and others within the Conservative Party. But yeah, I think a lot of the support for it would be more subtle. And there's sort of a fear that if you speak out about this, then it will make political life much more difficult. I'm not sure how true that is. I think actually, although most of the public are pro-abortion, they don't really care because it's a dead issue in the UK. So I would encourage our politicians to be a bit more outspoken and to encourage them that they can probably get 95% as many votes if they just came out and said pro-life and they wouldn't alienate very many people. But inevitably, in, in a culture like ours, there's going to be some a certain amount of fear. Yeah, <laughs> quite a few of them have become quite shy because of that. I'm very interested by the extent to which American pro-life politics impacts other Anglosphere countries, because countries like Canada, places like the UK, Australia, New Zealand are, are always very snotty about um, Americans in general. And, and, and so they always claim, like, you know, the Americans are like this and we are like this, right? We don't have the same sort of pro-life politics. At the same time, so much of what happens on abortion in Canada, just, just to give one example, like, is very much shaped by the American debate, which is also, you know, which we're getting to, you know, you go on the BBC to discuss a pro-life law in Texas because, you know, Brit the, the British media wants the comments of, of, of a pro-lifer, you know, in their country on something going on in the States. And so I always find it interesting that America is sort of like this enormous monolith that all of the Anglosphere countries claim to be different from, but yet are inevitably shaped by. To what extent do you find that American pro-life politics impacts the abortion debate in your country? I think it does quite significantly. And, and I think probably the way it shapes it most is the most unfortunate, which is, and, and that's probably deliberate, which is that the there's a deliberate attempt to try and portray pro-lifers in the UK as 
like <laughs> gun enthusiasts from the 80s Republican Party. <laughs> and, you know, the, the rest of the American debate, you know, isn't given much of an, a fair hearing. So the fact that Roe v. Wade, along with Doe v. Bolton on the same day, allowed abortion effectively up to birth for any reason, that's not widely known in the UK at all. When people in the UK cover Roe v. Wade, everyone gets kind of in a, a huge fuss and they say, this is terrifying, all these backwards kind of rednecks from the South are trying to limit women's rights. They don't realize that they actually agree with overturning Roe v. Wade. If you asked, if you told people in the UK, this is what Roe v. Wade says, do you think it should be overturned to a more limited but still liberal law, 99% of the UK would say, yes, Roe v. Wade has gone way too far. But that is not widely known in the UK at all. So, so as I say, most of the way it shapes the debate is actually basically just portraying English pro-lifers in the same way as the US, which is particularly bizarre when you think that the, the reason American pro-lifers get portrayed that way is because of the association with the Republican Party, which is generally more anti-welfare, more capitalist, and so on. In the UK, it's just completely different. We've always had, for, until the last couple of years, we've always had plenty of pro-lifers in any political party. And when you look at the debate when abortion was introduced in the UK, so many of the opponents were from the Labour Socialist Party, precisely because their party was based on sticking up for the most vulnerable people in society. And I think the, one of the ways it's most unfortunate is that you even get a lot of Christians buying into this perception. And so it's really quite revealing when you see, you kind of hear Christians saying, I don't want to talk about this issue and I'm maybe pro-choice or whatever. Because when you look at the American religious right, you know, it's full of these super conservative people who don't care about the poor and that kind of thing. And then you ask them, okay, how many pregnancy centers does the church run or at least church affiliated or Christian run in the US and it's thousands. And you ask, okay, what about the UK where we have all these nice progressive churches that care for the poor and that really want to care for the mother and the child in comparison to the nasty American Christians. And there's almost none. <laughs> it really kind of highlights the sort of hypocrisy there, which, which is troubling. And, and I, I think we're beginning to see changes within the church in the UK. I think people are beginning to see that this is an issue of justice and this is an issue of looking out for the last and the least and the lost in the way that Christians are supposed to. But it's it's slow progress and there's still a lot of that snobbery that you speak of. And that's that's very prevalent over in Europe as well. That's such a great observation that just because you're ideologically opposed to taxpayer-funded welfare programs, and, and I, I would call myself a common good conservative, which means I would be far more enthusiastic about, about various social programs for unwed mothers and pregnant mothers than, than most typical conservatives would be. But the idea that because you're you have an ideological view of economics that doesn't jive with the welfare state has nothing to do with where you're personally putting your money. Uh, it's just that they're putting it directly into crisis pregnancy centers, which is a very valid approach. It's not the European approach, but you've also struck on something interesting, which is Canadians and Americans are sometimes unaware of how radical their abortion debate is compared to most of Europe. Like our prime minister during every election, you know, likes to warn darkly about the conservative hidden agenda, which we've all been waiting, waiting for for years now. I never, you know, never manifests itself. And, and talking about sort of the Neanderthals who are coming to restrict 
people's rights when when what is being proposed by the pro-life movement here by and large is like what the germans have and the dutch have you know and the french have not even in many cases on what you guys have why do you think the abortion debate has become so radicalized in the anglosphere especially over the last 10 years there's a number of factors i think partly it's the fact that in many of these places the pro-life movement is finally making some progress i mean that's most obvious in the u.s where you have the Mississippi case, Dobbs v. Jackson coming up, along with potentially this, I think the Supreme Court now agreed to hear the Texas case as well. And that, that ban seems to be in place as we speak. So that's an obvious reason for sort of a, a backlash. In the UK, as I say, churches are beginning to realize that this is an issue and people outside the church are beginning to realize and the pro-life movement is becoming a bit more coordinated and being able to do a bit more politically and, and otherwise. So I think it's partly backlash against that. Another example, just quickly, is the growth of Students for Life societies in the UK. We've seen a massive, massive increase in university student groups growing and beginning to teach others about the reality of abortion. I think part of it is a reaction to Trump. And I say this as someone who is probably fairly in this, I'm not even in the center of politics. I'm on the right on some issues and on the left of some issues. I personally think Trump has done a lot of harm with some of the things he said. And actually most of my friends who are Republicans and pro-lifers would say that. And at the same time, I think I would vote for Trump over the alternatives um, in the US because the alternative really is abortion on demand up to birth, and it's extremely radical. So that's me just putting my cards on the table so no one can accuse me of just bashing Trump or you know, being a Trump fanatic. I think Trump has, because of perhaps the, you know, his general personality has been so inflammatory and has, I think it would be fair to say whatever you think of him, he's, he's contributed to the polarization of American politics. I, I think that has sort of by him being aligned with the pro-life cause and doing, admittedly, a lot of very good things for the pro-life cause, for whatever motivation, I think that has naturally caused sort of some of the polarization and people who feel particularly strongly about Trump and who really, really despise Trump see the pro-life movement aligned with him and so kind of project some of that hostility towards the pro-life movement as well. Um, so I think that's part of the re another part of the reason for the increased kind of polarization on this topic in the last few years. So there are other reasons as well, but I think it, it's part of a wider polarization of politics. It's partly a reaction to the fact that pro-lifers are making progress and a sort of fear on the side of pro-choice is that because people are now hearing our message and seeing the reality of abortion, they, they, they are rightly scared that when people see the reality of abortion, they begin to oppose it. And that's why you see so much of the debate about free speech and about blocking pro-lifers from the public view. I mean, if this was something that was really defensible on its own terms, you wouldn't need to censor pro-lifers. You just say, let's have the debate, let's show that you're wrong, and let's be done with it. But the fact that there's an attempt to censor so much, I think, is a reflection of fear that when people actually learn about the debate and see it even handedly and with both perspectives, they almost inevitably begin to side with the pro-life human rights perspective. And so I think people who hate that perspective quite naturally are becoming more hostile towards it and wanting to suppress it more than they have before. 
Now, getting into the reason I, I, I first I first came across your work, which is your interview on the BBC about the, 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 the six-week abortion ban in Texas with a BBC presenter who I think was quite honestly stunned halfway through the conversation when she realized that none of her gotcha questions were actually getting you, so to speak. Until the her final question, you know, ran along the lines of how do you sleep at night? And, and it was it was it was such an interesting interview for a couple of reasons. The first of which it is quite honestly, I, I, I've been watching pro-life interviews for 15 years and it's probably in the top five I've ever seen. The, though they always stick out to me when people are, are, are particularly adept at handling the very toughest questions. And when you go on to defend the Texas law, which is which is very complicated, you know, you don't sign up for an easy task. It's not as straightforward as just defending the pro-life position. You're defending a specific law restricting abortion to, to, to a stage that most people would consider to be very early. I remember one other interview a couple of years ago during the abortion referendum in Ireland that I, I was similarly impressed by. But how did you get to a point where you could go on the BBC, which must be intimidating, at least it would be for me, and to defend the pro-life, the pro-life position's most unpopular aspects that effectively? Because, you know, I know you won't say so, but it really was one of the best public defenses of the pro-life position on public television that I've ever seen. Absolutely. You know, there are, there are different levels of interview difficulty i did one a couple of months ago when our labor party tried to legalize abortion up to birth for any reason and i did another interview with a secular mainstream kind of news uh, service and they just said what so what does this proposed law do and i just said well it legalizes abortion up to birth for any reason and they were just like that's horrific and i was like yes yeah it is <laughs> and they were like i can't believe anyone would suggest that and i said no i can't either and they were like well i'm so glad you you told us about that thank you <laughs> that was like the interview <laughs> like it was it was like that was level one and so like you say when it comes to a heartbeat law which would uh, not prohibit abortion criminally but you know there's obviously this unique feature of the texas law allowing private civil suits to be brought against the doctor and other uh, accomplices, but not against the woman herself. Nevertheless, the fact that it's a sort of prohibition on abortion so early at six weeks of pregnancy, the line we've all heard a million times over the last few months is before many people even know they're pregnant is, is significantly harder in the sense that many people will find it unpalatable. So I think the first thing for me was just being confident in my position and having, you know, I, I researched this topic at the University of Oxford pretty much full time. Um, they don't pay me to do it, but it's still a kind of research position that gives me a lot of time to, to be able to look through the evidence, look through the arguments, and then practice delivering it in a way that's easily understandable. So I'm quite lucky and privileged in that I get to have this sort of background where I'm constantly preparing myself for these sorts of interviews. On the other hand, you know, just interview and ordinary sort of communication preparation is extremely important. You can't just go on as an academic. You have to know your key points in advance and be able to make sure you get them out and so on. And then just having responses ready for when people ask the hard questions. Now, you know, although far fewer than 1% of abortions in pretty much any country. I think it, it will differ between countries. But in most countries, including the most parts of the US, abortions for reasons of sexual assault or sexual crime are a tiny, tiny proportion, far lower than 
But you can guarantee pretty much that in any interview of this sort, that question is going to come up. How can you force a woman who has been through this horrific, violent abuse to continue with her pregnancy? And so no pro-lifer whoever does an interview should ever be stumped or thrown off by that question, no matter what they've been asked to speak on. So you have to have something prepared in order to respond to that, that is winsome, that is honest, and that is sincere. And so obviously I've had the privilege of a lot of research, a lot of practice and so on, and being confident in my convictions. But I really think, you know, what if once you have the basic position clear, once you're able just to describe an abortion, that in itself is very powerful. One of the interviews I did or a panel discussion, again, on the BBC a few years ago, that had the most sort of reaction to it was when all I did was describe an abortion. I was, I didn't even want to, I was asked by the host, so I had a, a fellow pro-life advocate on who described it in quite, I guess, less technical terms, but in honest, straightforward terms. And she described a second trimester surgical abortion, i.e. a dismemberment abortion. And the host then just asked me, you're a doctor, you can tell if this is just kind of pro-life is exaggerating or if this is true, what do you think? And I said, yeah, that's true. Second trimester surgical abortion involves tearing a baby apart limb by limb. And I said it in more technical terms than that. I, I used pretty straightforward medical objective terms, if you want to call it that. So I had given in very technical terms a description of a second trimester surgical abortion. And I mean, firstly, in the one place, obviously, I got a huge load of backlash from fellow medical colleagues who didn't actually reject anything that I said as untrue. They just said it was insensitive when the reality was I had answered a question in the most objective way possible. But it, it kind of goes to show that even just describing abortion, when you get the opportunity, just highlight the reality of the central thing that you're talking about. And that is really what is the most important thing and that alone will go a huge way in educating people and in showing that this is something that they have to take seriously i watched an interview the other day with an abortion clinic nurse from ireland and she was asked, and it was it kind of went viral among kind of young pro-choice people i think it was shared on lad bible or something like that and she was asked the question what is an abortion and the most kind of revealing thing to me was that she didn't actually answer the question. She, she spoke for a couple of minutes and all she talked about was why people get abortions. And that wasn't the question. The question is, what is abortion? And it was completely unanswered. And so for me, one of the, one of the central priorities for when I speak, regardless of the questions, and I do try and answer every question as sincerely and honestly as possible. Nevertheless, when you go on, you have a message. And one of them is the reality of abortion. And so I think when you become familiar with this and when you become confident at presenting these facts and you get a bit more practice, um, it obviously is still nervous and or nerve wracking. And it will always be nerve wracking if it's a big outlet like the BBC. And I'm not saying that you should feel absolutely confident because that would just be creating false expectations. But I would say that when you begin to speak out, when you're well prepared and when you know the material that you want to say, actually far more people can speak on this than they would think. And so I would encourage people to be confident in their abilities to speak on this. If they are not, find a one of the lectures or webinars that trains people on speaking about abortion because there are plenty around. And most people I find end up being confident and able to present this material and able to make a big difference. So yeah, I would try and encourage people to do that.
out of pure curiosity, what was it like when that interview was over? Because you, both you and the BB, BBC presenter very obviously had a point to make during that interview, and your, your point won, which is why she defaulted in her final question to basically asking you if you didn't think your position was patronizing. Was it a very chilly atmosphere in the studio when that interview wrapped up? So I was fortunate in that it was uh, it was a COVID interview, so it was over Zoom. So once the interview was over, I had no more kind of interaction with her at all. So I didn't really, I mean, I got the impression she didn't like me in a sort of BBC neutral, I don't like you kind of way. <laughs> uh, when you compare with the, you compare with the pro-abortion doctor who was on earlier in the day, who was completely uninterrupted, got to speak about whatever they wanted and didn't get any hard questions and so on, you know, it's, it sort of became clear what the bias and the position of the the host was. But actually, when I, when I kept sort of finished, I actually thought I really didn't like how that interview went. And especially when she cut me off and said, OK, thank you. I thought, oh, she must have thought that she won or that she, you know, really showed me up or embarrassed me. And I actually came away thinking it was one of the worst interviews that I had ever done. And I was really demoralized. And so it was It was actually a really profound way of encouraging that the pro-life movement has, that it was precisely that interview that I thought I had done terribly. I actually emailed some of my friends who were communications experts saying, I thought this went badly. Please, can you help me try and do better and handle these questions better in future? Um, it was actually such an encouragement that so many, it was probably like the most viral interview that I've done. <laughs> like people uh, actually really thought it went well and again that's an encouragement for people that even if you think you've done badly as you almost always do once you've done an interview where you're not in the driving seat um actually it almost never goes as badly as you think it's done <laughs> and it was one of those times that I was so grateful especially to have pro-life family just encourage me uh, the whole time I mean the wider pro-life family not my literal family who as I've said are not pro-life <laughs> necessarily um so yeah it, it was a huge encouragement I felt really demoralized and then it was it was something that I felt profoundly encouraged afterwards when I heard how many people had been encouraged by it and felt motivated to do more final question uh for our listeners where can they find your work it's a really good question because I I don't really do an active or good job of publicizing it i have a kind of slightly defunct blog called callum's blog so just c-a-l-u-m-s blog.com um, which covers all sorts of different topics and it's a bit kind of a, of a obscure mishmash of stuff but it does have some of my academic papers it does have some of my writings um, and it's got my contact details if anyone wants to get in touch there's a lot that i've done just on youtube so if you just search callum miller abortion on youtube there'll be plenty that comes up but I would say if, if there are really particular topics that people want to learn more about or want to find out more about, I would actually more than anything just encourage them to add me on Facebook or get in touch by email so that I can try my best to give specific advice or direct them to the best resources. I love to hear from people and I love to encourage people in defending children. So that was probably the best way. Just add me on Facebook or whatever and get in touch and I'd be more than happy to try my best to help. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Callum Miller, a pro-life 
activist, doctor, ethicist, philosopher from the United Kingdom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you want to check out past shows, please do go to the podcast tab where you can subscribe and get them sent directly to you. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we really do appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us this week, and we we hope you'll join us again next week.